As I said, we'll cover the rest of the narrative over the next couple of Sundays, God willing. But today we're focusing in on verses 1 to 5 of John chapter 13. And as Richard Phillips observes in his commentary, John 13, 1 sits at the literary center of John's gospel. Not the exact center in the sense that there are 12 chapters preceding John 13, and there's not 12 chapters till the end, so not the exact center in that sense, but the literary center. Jesus' public ministry has just ended, and there is a definite shift from chapter 13 onward as Jesus withdraws from public ministry to be with his closest disciples and to prepare both himself and them, his closest disciples, for the impending crucifixion and then the resurrection and the ascension which will follow the crucifixion. So the first half of John, you could say, is John 1 to 12. And now this morning, we are beginning our study of the second half of John. And so John 13, 1 sits right at the center, the literary center of John's gospel. Listen to Phillips. John 13, 1 stands at the very center of the teaching of John's gospel. Not only does it begin the second half of the gospel, but it looks both backward to what John has written and forward to what is yet to come. John's key statement is that having loved his own who are in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Indeed, that is the key statement to understanding verses 1 to 5, which we're focusing on today. The love of Christ is the theme. And we will explore it under three headings. Firstly, Jesus' love for his own. Secondly, Jesus' love to the end. And thirdly, Jesus' love in the context of redemptive history. So let's begin then with this first heading, Jesus' love for his own. As we have already seen in John's Gospel, there are people who have been given by the Father to the Son. John 6, 37. Everyone who is given by the Father to the Son comes in faith to Christ Jesus. And that's also in John 6, 37. And these do so because they come to faith in Christ Jesus, those who are given by the Father to the Son, come in faith to Christ Jesus because... They are divinely drawn to faith in Christ Jesus. John 6, 44. And whoever is drawn in the first place is divinely kept in the faith by God. For it is the will of God that Jesus should lose nothing of all that he has been given. John 6, 39. No one can snatch these people out of Christ's hand. John 10, 28. And neither will these people decide to jump out of Christ's hand, as some will argue. You can go back and listen to my sermon on John 10, 19 to 29 for a fuller defense of that assertion. But suffice it here to just say this. Whoever is drawn, or pardon me, whoever the Father gives to the Son is drawn. They come, and they are kept until they are raised up on the last day. 
This has been the plain teaching of John's gospel. Jesus has a people whom he calls his own, who are called here in John 13, his own. Oh, you who hear this message this morning, are you Christ's own? The emphasis here in John 13 is not on the cursedness of being outside the fold, but on the blessedness of being in and among the number of those whom Christ calls his own. So there are no threatenings this morning, just hopefully a compelling picture of the love of Jesus for his own. So I ask you again, have you ever felt the Spirit drawing you to Christ? Have you sensed and perceived the everlasting love of the Father for you in choosing you, setting his love upon you from eternity past and giving you to the Son? Do you know anything of the love of Christ Jesus? There is great blessedness in being among the number of those who can say, yes, I belong to Christ Jesus. I am His, and He is mine. I know that He loves me. There is blessedness in being among the number of those who are Christ's own. For we are loved. And therefore, because we are loved, we are drawn in the first place. Because we are loved, we come. Because we are loved, we are kept. Because we are loved, we will be raised up on the last day. You see, it is because Christ loves us. And that simply because we are his own, that we have been drawn to faith, that we are kept, and that we will be raised up. Christ does not love us because of something we did, or because of something that we do. Quite the opposite. Christ loves us in spite of everything that we have done, which is sinful and polluted, in spite of our remaining corruption and the various ways that it plays out in our lives. Christ loves us apart from any condition supposedly met in us or by us. He simply loves us because we are his own, because we have been given to him by the Father. He loves us. Therefore, because we are his own, he loves. We are drawn. We are kept. We are raised up because we are loved. It is for his own that Jesus came into this world. It is his own that he especially loves. And it is this love for his own which drove and prompted his ministry right up to and including his death. Understand here, at this juncture in the sermon, that Jesus has a people. That Jesus loves a people. 
and that Jesus therefore came for a people. John's Gospel is telling us here that Jesus has thus far fulfilled the mission of loving his own. And that he is continuing to fulfill that mission of loving his own. Jesus doesn't just love you up to a point. There is no point beyond which Jesus says, well, you were my own, and I used to love you, but now you've gone too far. There is no point at which Jesus says, well, yes, you are my own, and I do love you, but not that much. What would be required to love you that much is too much for me to do. We are told here in this passage before us this morning not only about Jesus' love for his own, but also about Jesus' love to the end. The Greek phrase translated here as the phrase to the end could be understood either chronologically, as in he kept on loving them until the end of his earthly life and ministry, or it could be understood as he loved them fully and completely. I think both are true. That's straightforward from the rest of Scripture. And it is characteristic of John's writing to use intentionally ambiguous phrases with double meanings to make us really think about what he's saying. It does seem here, however, at least to me, that this phrase's primary intention is to indicate that Jesus kept on loving his own to the end of his earthly life and ministry. In other words, though Jesus' public ministry has ended, we should expect to see Jesus continuing his love for his own, continuing to love his own in the forthcoming chapters. So John is saying, he's been loving his own so far in John, and just because he's withdrawn from public ministry doesn't mean now he's going to stop loving his own. No, Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. So get ready to read about his ongoing love for his own in the coming chapters. Now remember that this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. As the disciples sit down to the Passover meal before Jesus goes to Gethsemane to pray, where he will be arrested and the next day crucified. As one commentator noted, most of us would have our thoughts preoccupied with our own affairs if we knew with certainty that we were to die tomorrow. And yet here is Jesus on the eve of his death and knowing full well that that's the case, as verse 1 tells us, he knew that he was about to depart out of this world. Here is Jesus thinking about the dusty feet of his disciples. Their earthly temporal needs. Yes, the act of foot washing, which occurs here, is symbolic, and more on that next week, God willing. And yes, this foot washing has ethical implications, more on that the week after, God willing. But in its most immediate sense, it is a simple act of love and concern for the temporal affairs of the people around him. Now, the exact chronology is not 100% clear to me. 
But Luke records that around the same time as this Last Supper, in Luke 22, 24, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. It's most likely, I think, that this dispute occurred before the foot washing. And therefore, that this is the reason that John tells us that it was during supper, in verse 2. During supper, that Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and began to wash the feet of the disciples. As one commentator puts it, Jesus, after waiting in vain, for one of them to take the place of a servant, finally assumed the responsibility himself. Their feet needed to be washed. It's providential that we come to this passage at the very time, at this very time when ashfall from La Soufrere has covered Barbados and the image of dusty feet is therefore more vivid than usual. Imagine walking a few kilometers in open-toed shoes, sandals of some sort, and then arriving at somebody's home with dusty feet. We can understand that these feet would need to be washed. But this was a menial task, as Carson says, normally reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Peers did not wash another's feet, one another's feet except very rarely and as a mark of great love. And so, Carson says, the reluctance of Jesus' disciples to volunteer for such a task is, to say the least, culturally understandable. Now, if we think that on top of just the general cultural reluctance to wash the feet of peers, when we think about this argument that was taking place among the disciples as to who was the greatest, Realizing then that these men didn't consider themselves peers to one another, but each of them, or at least a number of them, thought that they were actually superior to the others. They certainly then don't want to lower themselves to wash the feet of their, at best, peers, or at worst, inferiors. And so no one volunteers. All of these guys show up with dusty feet, but no one volunteers because they don't want to lower themselves to this. Dinner is served, and everyone just begins eating in spite of the obvious fact that their feet are filthy, because no one will lower himself to the place of menial servant and provide his friends some relief from the discomfort of dusty feet. And yet, what does Jesus do? He loves his own by washing their feet. Who truly was the greatest among them? It was Jesus. Who really should have been the last one by rights to be expected to wash the feet of the others, Jesus. And yet here is Jesus humbling himself 
to love his friends, to serve his friends, to wash their dusty feet. We sang earlier in the service, who is he in yonder stall? We might paraphrase and say, who is he at the disciples' feet? Who is he with a towel wrapped around his waist? Who is he with a basin of water doing the task of the lowliest menial servants? Who is he showing love for his friends by doing this? Tis the Lord. Oh, wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. The hymn goes, at his feet we humbly fall, but what happened? At the disciples' feet, Jesus humbly kneeled. Oh, crown him, crown him, Lord of all. On the eve of his death, rather than withdrawing into a sullen, introspective preoccupation with his own needs and struggles, Jesus attends to the practical, temporal needs of his friends. Though it was really and truly beneath him, though it was not his job, Having loved his own, thus far, he keeps on loving. Imagine again walking a few kilometers in this dusty, ashy context in open-toed shoes. But this time to Queen Elizabeth Hospital, where you are visiting a cancer patient in palliative care, whom you have been told has hours to live. He has the reputation of being a servant-hearted man always thinking about the needs of others, loving and serving others in practical ways. Upon your arrival, he rouses himself from his bed, ties a towel around his waist, and begins to wash your dusty feet. This would certainly make you feel very awkward, as Peter felt in verses 6 and following, and more on that next week. But what would it say to you of the character of the dying man? What love that he would think of your needs even at this time. You would see and you would say if you had an opportunity to speak at his funeral that having loved, he loved even to the end. Jesus stays on the mission that he has come to accomplish right to the very end. He has come to love his own, and he keeps on loving his own right to the very end of his life. Let's look finally at Jesus' love in the context of redemptive history. What I mean by this is Jesus' love in the context of the great story of redemption from beginning to end. Let's look at Jesus' love in its place in the story of redemption. We read in this passage that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, washed the disciples' feet. Verses 1 and verse 3. I'm quite sure that none of the disciples were just so lovable that Jesus was preoccupied with loving them even on the eve of his death simply because their, uh, their loveliness 
outweighed his sorrow and consternation. Jesus' love for his disciples, to the contrary, was motivated by something higher and better than the loveliness of the disciples. And therefore, it persisted. And that higher and better thing was this. Jesus knew and embraced his place in the unfolding story of redemption. Jesus is the Son of the Father who has received a people to be his own. And he was sent into the world to love them. Jesus left eternal glory for the express purpose of loving his people. And after having loved them, he would be received back into eternal glory. Having fulfilled his mission of loving his people, not only in word, but in deed, culminating at the cross where he would die a penal substitutionary death for their sins, Jesus would ascend to the Father's right hand, not only as the pre-existent Son, but as the conquering Messiah. And as that Messiah, the Son of David, he would be given the name that is above every name, Philippians 2.9, and dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Daniel 7.14 Jesus understood this, that this is what was happening, that this is what was transpiring this very night when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Man, they needed someone to love them. They needed someone to love them in spite of their sin. They needed someone who would come into the world to do something about that pride, about that arrogance, about that blindness, about that narcissism that made them think that they were the greatest, that they were central. They needed someone to love them as they were in that spot. And Jesus understood that he had been sent into the world for that very purpose, to love these guys. These arrogant men with dusty feet. Jesus understood that he had been sent to love them. And so having loved them, he was not about to quit now. But knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus knew that he was in the final mile of his marathon, so to speak, and it was not time to quit now, but it was time to keep running and putting one foot in front of the other, and if there was any gas in the tank, even to pick up the pace. Because this is why he came, to love his own. Not only to love without limit, giving himself up for them at the cross the next day, but to love them without end. To love them without stopping, without breaking, without pausing. To never stop loving them. To love them even when he didn't feel like it. Even when they were least lovable. Even when the dark clouds gathered. Even when his own heart was troubled. And this involved loving them for a reason greater than their own loveliness. If he was going to love them this way, he had to love them for a reason greater than their own loveliness. 
We see here that Jesus' love for his disciples was rooted in his fidelity to the Father's plan and the Father's will. Jesus knew that this is why he came, and this is what was happening, this place in the story. He knew what chapter of the book they were in and what needed to be done. And so Jesus humbled himself at the feet of those whom at his feet ought to have humbly fallen. This ought to be a tremendous comfort to us. Because if Christ's loveliness, pardon me, if Christ's love for the disciples was predicated on their loveliness, we might wonder, or pardon me, we wouldn't have seen him loving them in this instance. And then we would conclude that his love for us must likewise be predicated on our loveliness. And then we would doubt whether at any given moment we're lovely enough, lovable enough for Christ to love us. But since we see that his love for these disciples was not predicated on their lovableness or loveliness, but his love for these disciples was part of a bigger picture. In fact, he came for the express purpose to love them at their point of need, in their wickedness, in their sin, in their unloveliness, simply because they had been given to him by the Father, simply because it was the Father's plan that he should descend to love these guys in order to ascend again for them and their salvation. Since his love for them was part of that bigger picture, we may be confident that his love for us is also part of that bigger picture. And that as he loved these disciples to the end, he will love us to the end. That we are his forever. As his own were in John 13. Judas is accepted here, of course. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But Jesus knew who his own were. We see in verse 2 that he knew full well what was in the heart of Judas. Verse 11 again. Verse 18 again. But Jesus also knew the rest of them as his own. And he loved them. Because that was why he came, was to love them. He loved them because they were his own. And he loved them with a love that, yes, had no limit, but also had no stop, had no pause button. Having loved them, he continued loving them constantly right through to the end of his life. What a love this is. Again, look at the character of Christ Jesus on the last night of his life when his soul was troubled, as he told us in the previous chapter. Here's Jesus thinking about the dusty feet of his friends. As the cancer patient in QEH 
would manifest just an astoundingly loving heart by washing the feet of someone who came to visit him while he was sick. So Jesus manifests just an astoundingly loving heart for his own here in the beginning of John 13. Again, listener, are you one of Christ's own? Have you taken him by faith to be your Savior? Have you claimed him as your own? It makes no sense to object. Not yet, because I'm not sure if I'm among the number given by the Father to the Son. It makes no sense to object like that, because Jesus himself teaches us in the same passage where he teaches us so explicitly about the giving and the drawing and the keeping of the people. Jesus teaches us in that very same passage that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look it up and claim that promise and come to Christ today and say, look, I'm coming. I'm not sure about the doctrine of election and all that, but I'm coming. And your word says that if I come to you, you will never cast me out. God knows his own eternal decrees and they're his sole business. He tells us about election this choosing and this giving of people from the Father to the Son, not so that we can decide whether or not we ought to believe, or not so that we can decide whether or not we ought to evangelize, trying to figure out if we're elect before we believe, or trying to figure out if people are elect before we evangelize. God knows His own eternal decrees, and they're His sole business. He doesn't tell us about election so that we can decide whether or not to believe or evangelize. Rather, God tells us about election in passages like this in the scripture to comfort us that whoever God has given to the Son will come. Whoever Jesus loves, he loves to the end, forever, according to the divine plan. If you are in Christ, you are loved. You are his own. Therefore, you are loved forever in His forever. This is the purpose of a phrase like His own in John 13, 1. So come to Christ in the first place in order that the comfort of a phrase like, I am His own, I am His, might belong to you. And if you do believe in Jesus, but you find yourself faltering in the faith and struggling along, see here Jesus loving sinners. See Jesus persisting in love to sinners. And think theologically about the statement of Scripture that Christ will not lose one of those whom the Father has given him. Plead the promise of Christ then, here implied and elsewhere explicitly stated, to love you to the end. Be comforted that he can love a sinner like you. In fact, that's the very reason he came, was to love sinners who have been given him by the Father. And hold on, though, hold on then with hope. Knowing that if you are his, you are his forever. And though you are weak, he is strong. Though 
you are not sanctified enough to do what you ought. As the disciples here were not sanctified enough to do what they ought to have. Jesus will step into that void and do what needs to be done for your good. Ultimately for your salvation. Jesus loves his own. Jesus loves them to the end. Not because of their loveliness, but because of the divine plan. Those who are his then are loved. Those who are his are loved forever and are his forever. 